0: Thanks very much, and good morning to all of you. I'm delighted to be here at, uh, I can't believe it was 25 years ago, I got my golden plate. I saw it hanging in the house the other day, looked at the date on it, and then looked in the mirror and realized that, yeah, it was 25 years ago. We've had, uh, it's always a delight for me to be here at the American Academy of Achievement because it is stimulating for me. I leave energized. I have an opportunity to have breakfast with the students I had this morning dinner last night, rub shoulders with people I've idolized my whole life, and leave stimulated and think, you know, what am I contributing to all of this? What does my work help us, Under how does it help us understand who we are and how we fit into the world, as we talked about this morning? And thanks to people uh, at the American Academy of Achievement I'm given an opportunity to come and talk to you about the importance of the work that I've been so passionately involved in. We heard about mentoring, we heard about develop a passion for what you do, and success will follow. The road to success, my motto that hangs over my desk is the road to success is always under construction, and you will find out that it's not always a direct line from what you think you want to do to what you achieve. But the Academy brings together people who think about the world in so many different ways that it enriches all of us who have an opportunity to rub shoulders, shake hands, share a meal, and to argue one point of view or another. This morning's session, to me, perhaps, is one of the most important because the title I've given my own talk here, that I kind of sat and scribbled out yesterday, is Our Place in Nature. Uh, I think to myself that Probably the most important thing we can do is protect the planet Earth. And I'm reminded that bumper sticker I saw the other day, I don't live in Berkeley anymore, I live in in, uh, Arizona, but a bumper sticker I saw the other day sort of summed up what we talked about this morning, live simply so that others might simply live. And I think that that's an important message for all of us and I hope you got that from this morning. I too work overseas, I work in Ethiopia, I work in third world countries, I see that we don't need to rape the planet the way that we do in the West, that there are ways that we can subsist in ways that are much more in harmony with the natural world around us. For example, in my field camp in Ethiopia where we work, we run on solar energy, novel concept. That's how we run our computers. That's how we run our electricity. We subsist with one solar panel out there for three months. One of the questions that has come up over and over this morning and last night was, you know, how does this uh, little kid growing up in Hartford, Connecticut, I was, I have to make a confession like everybody else, a, a real nerd in high school. I was interested in astronomy and anthropology and zoology and chemistry and so on, but how did a young kid growing up in Connecticut, especially next door to the Hartford Theological Seminary, end up being an evolutionary biologist and ending, and? and, and going off to Africa and and finding an extraordinary fossil like Lucy. Well, I had a mentor. My dad died when I was two years old and I was raised by my mother who was herself not an educated person. But I lived next door to the Hartford Theological Seminary and I met an anthropologist, a guy who went off to Africa and studied agricultural practices and so on and let me take care of his dog and stay in his apartment from time to time. And in perusing his library, a very thin volume slipped off the shelf when I was about 13, 14 years old with a today a politically incorrect title, Man's Place in Nature, written by Thomas Henry Huxley, Charles Darwin's bulldog, as he's so often called. And what Thomas Henry Huxley articulated in that volume was our closeness to the natural world, which was a profound thing for me. Secondly, our closeness to cousins who are still living on this planet, that is to say the chimpanzee and the gorilla. And thirdly, he articulated in an eloquent way Darwin's revolutionary notion that all life got here through a single process, which is called evolution by means of natural selection. It is, in fact, as I've gone through the years, I realized the grand unifying theory of biology. Physicists have been and continue to look for the grand unifying force of the universe and they can't find it. You can imagine how it bugs them and they spend billions of dollars doing it, right? Here was an Englishman, a retiring Englishman, left the island once, went on a ship, came back, totally transformed, came up with the grand unifying theory of biology, the thing that still unifies everything we do in biology. So this was a a, a absolutely mind-changing book for me. In 1959, when I was 16 years old, so now you all know how old I am, those of you who are good at math, and uh, in 1959, the same neighbor brought to me the New York Times with an article about a skull that had been found in Tanzania by Louis and Mary Leakey. It was called Zynganthropus, or Nutcracker Man. It had a magical name, Olduvai Gorge, had a magical ring to it, and it seemed that Africa, biology, my interest in, 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 in the natural world were all coming together and I decided at that time that I wanted to go to Africa and look for fossils. I remembered the penultimate paragraph in Huxley's Man's Place in Nature which said that ultimately in some stratum there will be found a human ancestor more ape-like or an ape more human-like and that this will be found by some unborn paleontologist. And I thought, I was unborn when he wrote that. (laughs) So off I went to college, university. And in 1974, when I was getting my union card, the PhD, I was at the University of Chicago, one of the great schools. And uh, I had just finished the defense of my thesis, an absolutely riveting thesis that all of you should have a copy of on chimpanzee teeth. And uh, I was sitting there with uh, my committee, who we'd now become friends. We could now call each other by our first names. They weren't quite as antagonistic as the hour and a half before when I walked in the room and they were all sitting there like like grand, Grand Inquisition. And they said to me, well, Don, what are you going to do now? I says, I'm going to Africa and I'm going to find something. And that's part of the passion. That's part of having vision. That's part of having a goal. That's part of what makes us who we are as human beings. And that fall, I did make a discovery. Uh, Darwin and Huxley predicted that because our closest relatives live in Africa, that's where we will find our oldest and most primitive and most ape-like ancestors. Well, in November of 1974, when I found the skeleton of Lucy, it was another discovery that vindicated Darwin's prediction that Africa would prove to be the cradle of humankind. Uh, Finding Someone asked me this morning, well, wasn't it sort of just blind luck that you kind of stumbled across this? I said, well, you know, I wasn't actually stumbling aimlessly throughout the African landscape under the sun, the African sun in about 120 degrees. I had a lot of experience behind me. I had teamwork. I had a team of scientists and students who have dedicated their lives to unraveling the mystery of understanding that question that all of us ask ourselves. Probably the first question you ever remember asking, right? Mommy, where did I come from? Well, I've been fortunate in participating in answering that question, and it was really a, a combination of experience, teamwork, meeting opportunity. And that's why I think in 1974, on November 30th at noon, I found this skeleton, because I was properly prepared and had the experience. Lucy was really a beginning for me. It defined my career. I had just gotten my PhD. I was 31 years old. It certainly launched my career in a way that I had not anticipated, it was an incredible reward for me. She has stimulated, as you heard yesterday from Dr. White, two and a half decades of field research in Ethiopia, where now Lucy has ancestors, much older than she, going back well over four million years. She stimulated two and a half decades of research in Ethiopia and indeed, throughout the Great Rift Valley of Eastern Africa. There are international teams working at this moment finding fossils that are more complete and even older than Lucy. It is, Lucy is probably the best known hominid discovery of the 20th century, certainly much better known than me, her discover. I was on a plane recently and someone asked me what I did and I told them I was a paleoanthropologist. They thought I studied old anthropologists. <laughs> I told him I studied human origins and, uh, uh, oh, where do you work? And I said, well, I work in Africa and I look for fossilized remains of our ancestors. He says, well, did you ever find anything? And I said, well, I found a little skeleton called Lucy. He says, oh, you must be Richard. I, no, no, that's the other guy. So she is much better known than her discoverer, named as all of you know, I think, after the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Although older and uh, more complete uh, fossils have been found, Lucy continues interestingly to be the benchmark by which other fossils are judged. As you heard yesterday, the 4.4 million year material from Ethiopia is 1.2 million years older than Lucy. She has become the reference point by which we judge so many of these discoveries. Interestingly also, she has taken on a a very important role as kind of an ancestral ambassador. Sitting around at dinner, someone says, oh, did you see the new skull that was discovered today? It was on the front page of the New York Times, and someone says, I don't know anything about this subject of human evolution or fossils. I mean, someone said, did you ever hear of Lucy? And it's sort of like bringing up the name of an old relative, which in a way she is. So (laughs) she she is a way for people to find an easy entry into understanding this one of the great mystery of mysteries as it has been called. I don't think it's so much the fact that we find the oldest or the largest brained or the most complete. Each and every one of these discoveries is extraordinarily important. Recently in my laboratory at the Institute of Human Origins, we entertained uh, Dr. Meve Leakey, Richard Leakey's wife, for a whole day. She brought with her a new cranium. 3.5 million years old, about the same age as Lucy, a different species. It means that Lucy, probably her species had company in that time range. It doesn't really threaten or change uh, some of my ideas. It gives us something else to think about. So all of these things are remarkably important, each and every one of them. And I think each time we find a new piece to the puzzle, we get closer to solving that mystery. That we as this egocentric species, as you heard, are so interested in. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Why are we in charge? Um, But I think that the importance of these fossils far transcends the size of the brain, the length of the femur, or whatever. I think what's more important is that what it tells us about ourselves. They are links. They're not missing links in the incorrect use of that phrase, but they are links To me, they were missing, of course, now they're found, and they're probably part of the whole chain of evolution. But more than that, they're links to the natural world. They remind us that there was an extraordinarily long and protracted period of time when we did live in harmony with the natural world. And they remind us about where we've come from, how we got here, and in a way, how we fit in with the rhythms of the planet. I think the inescapable conclusion after some six million years uh, of evolution is that there is a single species that is in control. And frightening as it sounds, this species, Homo sapiens, as Linnaeus called us, supposedly wise man, um, is is a species that is really going to determine the outcome uh, of life, our own life, and the life of all of our fellow travelers on this planet. And uh, I think that what is most important about understanding our link to the natural world that we are reminded of every time we find one of these new hominid fossils that's three or four or five or six million years old is that we need to reinvent a reverence for the natural world. We have to respect the natural world that is responsible, was responsible for the creation of ourselves, that we do have an extraordinary debt to the natural world. We wouldn't be here without Uh, the natural world. Uh, There are, paleoanthropology is a highly controversial uh, endeavor. Sometimes it conflicts with personally held ideas. There are scientists who hold very different ideas uh, about how we got here as human beings. But one thing that is happening in the field of human paleontology that I think is most rewarding is that there is one inescapable conclusion I think that we're all reaching and that is that Darwin was correct that Africa is indeed the cradle of humankind, DNA studies, archeological studies, paleontological studies, all are pointing back to Africa as the crucible in which all of the important hallmarks of what it means to be human first appeared. We first stood up and began to walk on two legs in Africa. We first began to make and use stone tools two and a half to three million years ago in Africa. We first began to develop bodies that are proportioned and built like our own in Africa. The first significant brain expansion happened in Africa. Our studies are showing us that it is not a straight inexorable march from ape to angel, as we like to think of ourselves as being the angels, of course, that it was a tree of evolution, just as Darwin said. And as Jack Horner said yesterday, extinction is the rule. We are the exception. But what is interesting about the tree of evolution, the hominid tree of evolution, is that no matter where we grasp a branch on that tree, the roots lead back to Africa. It means that, in fact, we are all Africans ourselves. I was talking to someone the other night at a dinner in Scottsdale. They had just gotten back from a safari, and I hope all of you have a chance to go back to where you were born, because they came back, and he he said, it was just unbelievable. He said, I came back from Africa, and he said, you know, I cannot wait to go on another trip. It's almost as if it gets into your blood. And I said to him, you know, not only is it in your blood, not only is it in your bones, it's in your genes. Because that is, in fact, where we were born. That is, as Peter Matheson wrote in his book, The Tree Where Man Was Born, the atavistic feeling and sense that's reawakened in all of us when we walk the African landscape and feel the pulse of the original homeland for all of humanity. Well, I think this knowledge enriches us, reminds us of our roots, our commonality, and most importantly, as a species, our interconnectedness with the natural world and our interconnectedness to one another. It doesn't matter what color skin, what shape eye, what color hair, what shape hair, or whatever. We are all a single species. We all, as Darwin suggested, have a common beginning and a common origin. And I think if we can embrace that simple, but very profound notion that we all have a common origin. And the common origin that I'm talking about, there is revolutionary work which is going on because of genetics that suggests that perhaps as recently as 50 to 100,000 years ago, a single group of hominids came out of Africa, probably dark-skinned, more than likely, and became the founding population for the six billion people on the planet today. That's how closely related we are to one another, extraordinary. The implications of this simple but profound, I think, uh, bit of knowledge that the study of our origins brings us, the implications are clear. That we all have a common origin, and I think if we have a common origin, we have a common destiny. And that common destiny today is in our hands. You, as future leaders sitting out there, will craft the outcome of humanity's future. Future evolution of this species that has been called the anthropocentric species, I like to call it the egocentric species. We all think of ourselves before we think of anything else. But it is my hope, if there is, and hopefully there will be future evolution, that the egocentric species will evolve into an introspective species. A species that will use its technology to make responsible and informed decisions about what we and how those decisions will impact the world around us and make responsible decisions so that this species will become not only as we are as anthropologists, guardians of the past, but guardians of the future. And it is my hope that people, young people like you in this audience will be involved in that decision making and that you will make the right choices, the informed choices, so that you will leave descendants who will someday look back on their ancestors. Thank you very much.